0: Tonight, um, our text comes from Jeremiah, which is one of the big books, big prophets in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible with you tonight, you're welcome to open to Jeremiah chapter 32. And really the entire chapter, 44 verses, is the subject of our sermon, but I'm just going to read parts of this chapter. Um, The parts I'm going to read should be on the wall and also in your bulletins to give us a good idea of what the whole chapter is about. Jeremiah chapter 32. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. This is God's word for you tonight. It's authoritative and meaningful uh, for you no matter where you're coming from, no matter what's going on in your life. So please give it your attention. Jeremiah 32, beginning in 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord. And he said to me, buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. For the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And so I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. Down to verse 15. Verse 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Down to verse 21. You brought your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, you have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses. Though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold... I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Skip to verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul." For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. This is God's word. Let's ask him together to help us understand it rightly. Please pray with me. Our Father, tonight we come again asking humbly that you would sit us under the weight and authority of what you say to us here, and also that you would lift us up with the grace and the love that is revealed here. Father, we confess tonight that this week our minds have been all over the place. Father, I confess with sick kids, this week has been hard. I've been frustrated and tired and fussy. Father, perhaps some of us tonight feel the same way. Perhaps some of us tonight come here doubting, angry, afraid. Perhaps some of us come here wondering what in the world are we doing back in a church? This place has never done anything of any worth for me. Perhaps some of us here tonight, God, have been in church most Sundays in our life and are excited to be here again, eager to hear from you. Father, tonight, no matter where we're coming from, emotionally or spiritually or intellectually, no matter where we live in this city, no matter what faces us in the coming days, we ask that tonight, for these few moments, you would come That you would send your Holy Spirit to remind us again through this portion of the Bible about what is true. Help us to see that we are beloved by you, and yet at the same time, we are people who love to run away from you. Help us to see that you are a God who is just and a righteous king, and that you also are a God who loves to forgive the Father and the sons to the thousandth generation. Help us tonight. Father, to believe that what you have revealed to us here is meaningful and relevant for whatever we're facing. Help us to hear you when you speak. And may your words not fall on deaf ears or on stony hard hearts. But we ask that you would, by your Spirit, grant to us life and faith and hope. And we ask these things humbly in faith. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, the only begotten. Amen. I heard a preacher tell a story uh, that I thought was relevant for this sermon and for this particular text. He talks about um, the state of Florida in the early 20th century, in the early 1900s, was booming and growing. And part of the reason for that was because railroads had finally been built all the way down through Florida. Real estate was available and people were flooding there because of the weather and for other reasons by the masses. In the colder parts of the country in those years, there were flyers that real estate companies would mass mail out that showed beautiful vistas and oceanfront properties and would sell and market all of the new real estate that was becoming available in Florida. And many, many people would move from cold and barren places like Ohio and Philadelphia and uh, places that no one in their right mind would want to live in, right? Right? And uh, they they come south, and they would buy this land, oftentimes sight unseen, because the pitch by the salesman had been so good, and they would drive or take whatever means of transportation would get them and their families to Florida, and they would arrive on the little parcel of American real property that they had bought for themselves, and they would look and they would see the panoramic vistas just like the brochures that sold them the property said there would be, and they would see the beautiful oceanfront views, and they would see all sorts of potential. But there was one little problem. Their property was underneath three feet of water these real estate men had sold thousands of pieces of Florida swampland. And as people arrived, sight unseen, they were dumbfounded to find that they had been scammed and that it would be years before this property would be worth anything, much less what they had paid for it. In this story tonight that we just read about the prophet Jeremiah, it seems like God is trying to get Jeremiah to buy a piece of swampland, a worthless piece of property in a city that's about to be overrun by a foreign army. It's an interesting chapter. It's a fascinating chapter. It's a chapter that I think tells us a lot about God and about ourselves. But before we jump into it too deeply, let me tell you a little bit about where we've been. We're jumping forward here in the story, again, by a number of hundreds of years. Last week, we looked at the story of David, the king, the first great king of Israel. And we saw that God made promises to David that he would always have someone upon his throne and that those promises are fulfilled in the greatest son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. And as we move forward... From David's life in the story of God we see that David dies and his son Solomon comes and reigns and that's sort of the high point of Israel's history and then Solomon dies and he has a son Rehoboam who is not a good or a wise king. He is actually very foolish and unwise. He makes some very hasty bad leadership choices early in his reign as king and the kingdom of Israel is split. You can read about this in First and Second Kings. Israel is split between the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. David's sons reign in the southern kingdom of Judah. And as the Bible story progresses, you'll see that most of the kings that come onto the throne are bad, bad seeds. They're people that don't do anything right. They lead the land of Israel and the people of God into idolatry, into all sorts of horrific sins, into all sorts of bad financial and political agreements and arrangements. And things really, really go downhill for Israel in the intervening centuries between David and Solomon and the place where we find ourselves tonight. By the time Jeremiah lives, it's about 500 years after David. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been overrun by a foreign army 100 years before. And Jeremiah's calling in life as a prophet from God is to speak to the people who live in the capital, in the city of Jerusalem, about God's impending judgment. It's actually quite a a sad thing to read about Jeremiah's call. In the first couple of chapters of Jeremiah, God calls him to ministry, and then he says to him, first thing, by the way, Jeremiah, no one's ever going to listen to you. Everyone's going to hate you. They're going to reject you. Your ministry's really not going to have any fruit, but do it anyway. That's the life that Jeremiah as a prophet is called to live. The prophets of God, people like Jeremiah, uh, their books, their writings take up huge portions of the Old Testament. Jeremiah is actually, if you just go by word count alone, it's the longest book in the Bible. Even longer than the Psalms. And the prophets, during these intervening years where Israel's in decline and where the kings are corrupt, the prophets serve a very important purpose. The prophets live and exist to speak for God to God's people. Prophets are their living megaphones that God uses to arouse a deaf world, as C.S. Lewis said. And most of the time, the prophets, as they did to Jeremiah, the the people ignore them. And yet here in this story that I've read for us, we see um, in many ways summarize the whole purpose of God's prophets The whole purpose of God speaking through them. We see here judgment. We see here promises of restoration. We see here in many ways an an encapsulation of what God was doing in the years where the monarchy was crumbling. And he sent men to say, thus says the Lord. What is God up to? How does God speak? And what does this mean for you? Three things I want to show you tonight as we look through these story, uh, this, this story briefly. First, first idea tonight is that uh, Jeremiah is asked to make a crazy investment. Second, I want to show you a fair question. And then third, a gracious response. A crazy investment, a fair question, a gracious response. Okay? So when our story opens, Jerusalem, the capital city, is in a great depression, Money is scarce, people are starving, and all of this is happening because Jerusalem is about to be invaded. The Chaldean or the Babylonian, those are the same thing. The Babylonian armies camped outside of the city walls of Jerusalem and the invasion is soon to take place. So the economy is crumbling, the king Zedekiah is clueless, and the people are terrified. And the prophet Jeremiah has spent the last number of years prophesying that this was going to happen as an act of God's judgment against this rebellious, sinful, covenant-breaking people. And because of Jeremiah's prophecy, when the chapter opens, we find him basically under house arrest. In verse 2 of chapter 32, we read that Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. And Zedekiah, the king, comes to him and says, Jeremiah, why have you been saying this for so many years? You are so depressing. You make everyone so sad. You don't give any good news. All you ever say is we're going to get overrun. We're going to get taken over. Repent, repent, repent. We could use a little bit of good news. And because you refuse to do that, I'm just going to throw you in prison. And the king sends out other prophets that are false prophets. They're the men that say what the king wants the people to hear. They say everything's going to be fine. And so in many ways, when you read through Jeremiah and when you read through other prophets, it's really, it's a battle between which prophet is really speaking for God. I think about in the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's great stories. In the middle of the second book, um, there's a man called Grima Wormtongue, who uh, who is an advisor to one of the kings in the land. And he's a very bad advisor who's been bought off by one of the evil wizards, Saruman. And the movies project this very, very vividly. Uh, Gandalf, the great wizard, one of the heroes of the story, walks into this king's chambers at some point in Tolkien's narrative. And Grima Wormtongue is there at the side of the king's shoulder as he sits on his throne, and he's whispering lies and deception into his ear, saying, everything is going to be okay. You don't need to worry, and you for sure don't need to listen to this gray-bearded wizard. Ignore him. Gandalf takes Grima Wormtongue and deals with him and throws him out and tells him exactly what Jeremiah tells the people of God thousands of years ago. Things are not okay. In fact, you are in great peril. Jeremiah speaks for God and because he speaks for God, he often finds himself in trouble. And so Zedekiah says, Jeremiah, why do you keep doing this? And then Jeremiah, interestingly, answers Zedekiah in verse 6, which is where I began reading. Instead of answering Jeremiah, he merely says this. Here's what God said to me. God told me to buy some real estate just outside of Jerusalem in a little part of Uh, Jerusalem, this little village called Anathoth. It's really uh, uh, property laws in those days were weird, but this was, you know, sort of a family legacy in Jeremiah's family and his cousin wants to sell it to him. And Jeremiah thought, I wonder if this is really from the Lord. And so the next day, his cousin comes along and says, hey, Jeremiah, listen, I've got a great deal for you, right? Great investment opportunity. You can get this property for cheap. I mean, it's cheaper than it has ever been before. You need to get in right now at the bottom of the market. And Jeremiah says, okay, I'm going to do it. God's told me to do it. But again, the obvious and really only problem is that Anathoth... The property that Jeremiah buys with silver from his cousin is currently occupied by the Babylonian army. It was their campground. And Jeremiah buys it. Think about this. If you were Jeremiah's financial advisor, it it doesn't take an MBA, right, to tell him this might not be the wisest use of your money, Jeremiah. This place is going down. You know, imagine. Uh, imagine at the Alamo, a very famous part of our city, a couple hundred years ago, almost now. Um, David Crockett and all the others hear that the Mexicans are on their way and they're going to invade, and that they have a vastly superior force, and that they're going to take over. There's no hope. And imagine David Crockett hears this news and thinks, you know that. I think now's a great time to just set up right outside of the walls of the Alamo, downtown San Antonio. And, and he just went out there and, you know, started building himself a home for his family to move down a little bit later and, and to make a life for himself right there, knowing that things are going to go south very, very quickly. That's exactly what Jeremiah is doing. And he's only doing it because God has, for some reason, told him to go buy this piece of property. It's a crazy investment. It makes no sense to the outsider's eyes why Jeremiah would do this. And you can imagine what people are saying, right? They're saying as they walk around town and hear that Jeremiah has purchased this piece of property, isn't this the guy that's been saying for years that we're about to get ransacked by the Babylonians and that we need to repent? This proves that he's nuts. The old prophet is off his rocker. He's buying land. I mean, we've never believed him, but it seems pretty evident now that that property that's not going to be worth much now or any in the near future because the biggest army in the world is camped out on it. It makes no sense. It's a, it's a crazy investment. You ever feel like God's asked you to do something that you think is akin to buying a piece of swampland? You ever feel like living as a Christian is, is just crazy? I mean, think about how often, if you read through the Bible, God tells people to do things that seem just insane. I mean, think about Noah. In the middle of the desert, God tells him, build a huge, huge boat because a flood's coming. And the people walk by over the hundreds of years it took Noah to build the ark. People think he's crazy. Think about Abraham. He's doing well in Ur of the Chaldeans. God comes to him and says, Abraham, drop everything and go. Go. It's crazy. It makes no sense. Think about the disciples of Jesus in the New Testament. When Jesus says, go into all the world, you're going to change the world. The church is going to be built through your ministry. These are uneducated Galilean fishermen. It makes no sense. It's insane. It's a crazy thing that God has told them to do. Has God ever told you to do something crazy? Has God called you to something that makes no sense to the eyes of the world? You mean to tell me you're going to to adopt a child from a foreign country because he's needy and doesn't have parents? That's that's crazy. You mean to tell me you're going to forgive that person after what they've done to you for so many years? That is crazy. You mean to tell me you're going to give away your hard-earned money to organizations that are trying to serve those who have need. That That is insane. Think about it. The gospel itself is crazy. Jesus himself says that if anyone wants to follow me, he has to take up his cross. He must first die to himself before he can be my disciple. That is crazy. The gospel says that An ancient Jewish rabbi from the town of Nazareth died a normal criminal's crucifixion outside the city gates of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And because that happened, all of your sins can be forgiven. That's crazy. The gospel says that those who seek for pride and wealth and possessions and money and influence and power in this world are going to be the least in the kingdom of God. And the least of these and the poorest and the weakest and the most broken and the most hurt are going to be called great. It's crazy. Oftentimes, following God only makes sense in the context of the story of God. Oftentimes, God is going to call you to do something that, through natural eyes, looks to be completely nuts. Are you ready to respond when you get such a call? Let's see what happens to Jeremiah. There's a crazy, a crazy investment in Second Jeremiah's response he asks a fair question. Really, he does two things. If you'll look with me there in verse uh, 17 or so, where Jeremiah begins praying after God has told him to buy this real estate that's currently property of the Babylonian army. He says there in verse 17, Lord God, it's you who made the heavens and the earth. You did it all by your power. Nothing is too hard for you. That's the most important thing to get about Jeremiah's response. Really, the first thing he does is worship through this prayer. And I got to tell you, Jeremiah is an impressive guy. That would be a difficult thing to do if you had just been told by God to do what Jeremiah had just been told by God to do. But the first thing Jeremiah says is, God, this makes no sense to me, but nothing is too hard for you. And then he gives this beautiful prayer in verses 18 and following, rehashing what God has done for his people. He worships God and says, You are great in counsel. You're mighty indeed. You've shown sign and wonders to your children. You are the God who saves. You're powerful. You're merciful. You're kind. You gave us this land. He worships. But then in verse 25, it's not technically a question, but you can sense the question behind what he says. He says, Yet, yet God, all this is true, but... You really want me to buy that land in Anathoth? Like, really? This is is the city that you've been telling me is about to get overrun by the Babylonians? I've been preaching this message for decades. No one's believed me, but I've kept doing what you tell me, and now you're telling me to lay down my home base here? It's a fair question. And you know, I think we can learn a lot from the way Jeremiah responds here about our own responses to God. You see, Jeremiah responds both in worshiping faith and, at the same time, in faithful questioning. And I want you to understand that those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, Jeremiah worships God and says, God, you're great. I believe you can do anything. Nothing is too hard for me, but this just doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. What are you doing? You know, it's possible, it's possible to just skip the worshiping part and go straight to asking the questions of God. That, I would say, is not appropriate. We do not have the right to demand an answer from the Creator about why He does what He does, but we do have a relationship with Him so that we can ask Him real questions and deal with real doubts and face real anxieties and struggles. You know, in Luke chapter 1, I think we see a great example of this. There, uh, the angel Gabriel appears to what was going to be Jesus' family. First, he appears to Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, and says, your wife, Elizabeth, is about to give birth to John the Baptist. And Zechariah basically says, no way, you're crazy. She's, there's no way. She's way past childbearing age, right? And what happens to Zechariah? He's struck mute until the baby is born. That's an example of asking without worship. <laughs> But in the very same chapter, just a few verses later, the angel appears to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and says to Mary, you are going to give birth to a son. He shall be called the Son of God. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And Mary says, what am I to make of this? She asks a question, just like Zechariah asked a question. But her question, her doubt, her anxiety is all couched in a response of worship to God. And so God hears her question. And responds to her with grace. You know that that's true in your life as well. Listen, it's possible for you to have the kind of relationship with the living God of the universe that you can ask him real questions and deal with real struggles and face real doubts and not be afraid that he's going to just sort of shoot you off the face of the earth. When you, are, when you are in a loving relationship with your heavenly father, you can come with him with your deepest worries, fears, doubts, and skepticism. Do you think you have that kind of relationship with God? Have you ever done that? You know, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, we're glad you're here. You know, I'm not sure what you think of this. But I would encourage you to, to consider speaking to God about your doubts. I'd encourage you to consider bringing, like, the most vicious arguments you have against Christianity. The things you think make the existence of God completely unfeasible or the things that you think make God wicked and not good. Bring those to him. Wrestle with him about those issues. Bring those to the church and allow yourself to be in a community where you can think through the hard questions of life. Bring those to the scriptures. And allow God to speak back to you. Believe that if you can speak honestly to him, he will also speak honestly to you through his scriptures and have a conversation with the living God. It's okay. In fact, I would say it's a good thing to bring your doubts, your skepticism, and your unbelief and test them before God through a conversation. If you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for years, I would encourage you to do what Jeremiah does here. Listen. To express doubt and fear and worry to God is not opposed to faith. To express doubt and fear and worry to God is not weakness of faith. In fact, I would even say that to refuse to express your doubt and your worry and your fear to God is a sign of a weak faith. If you believe that God is who we say he is and that God is what the scriptures teach, then God can surely handle the difficulties that you're facing intellectually or emotionally, or relationally. You can come to God, like Jeremiah does, and say, God, listen, I know you're going to take care of me. I know you're good. Just like Jeremiah says, I know you're powerful enough to do anything, but I just don't understand why you won't help me out financially. We can barely make ends meet each month. What are you doing? You, you can come to God and say, God, you've always been good to me, and you've always been faithful, but why am I still sick? why can't I feel better? You you can come to God and say, God, you care for me. I believe that you're a good father, but why is my marriage crumbling despite my best efforts to preserve it? God, you can come to God and you can say, God, your your steadfast love is, is evident in my life, but why am I so afraid all the time? You see, this story encourages us to come to God with the real the real us, (laughs) or is that the real we? Whatever the pronunciation or the, the case, it's the real issues we're facing. And to bring them before him in the context of worship and say, God, we do not understand. God welcomes that. God warmly embraces those who come to him, acknowledging that they don't have things figured out. That's exactly what he does with Jeremiah. He's told Jeremiah to make this crazy investment And then Jeremiah worships, and in the context of his worship, he asks God this fair question. And then thirdly, we see a gracious response. Verse 26, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah again. And amazingly, he echoes Jeremiah's prayer there in 27. You see that? Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Rhetorical question, the answer being no Is anything too hard for me? You said it yourself, Jeremiah. Nothing is too hard for you. And then God in the remainder of the chapter gives us some of the most, really some of the most poignant and beautiful parts of of this book and really of the entire scriptures. He basically says, if you're going to trust anyone, Jeremiah, you need to trust me. And then he lays out before Jeremiah a glimpse of of his future plan, of the next part of the story of God. In verses 28 through 35, he he confirms what he's been speaking to Jeremiah for years at this point. He says, I am going to send this army. They are going to overrun Jerusalem. It is going to be unpleasant. They're going to destroy the city. They're going to take people into exile. And this is going to happen because, verse 30, the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. They've done nothing but provoke me to anger. It's aroused my anger and my wrath, verse 31, from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah. They've provoked me to anger. I am going to do it. Sin is not something that God just sweeps under the rug. He must deal with it. And he tells Jeremiah that here. But that is not the last word that God has for Jeremiah. He doesn't just say, Jeremiah, you know, you've been right all along. I'm going to wipe this people out. Your real estate investment is going to be worthless. No, God's told Jeremiah to buy this piece of property as as a living illustration of what God is going to do for Israel. He says, vineyards again will grow in this land. Houses again will be built here. And Jeremiah, your purchase of Anathoth is anticipating what I will do for my rebellious people one day by my grace. And that's what he begins saying there in verse 36. Even though I'm going to judge these people, Even though because I am righteous and holy and the king, even though they have rebelled against me, I'm I'm going to send them into exile. Even though they will be punished for a time, this is not the end of my relationship with them. Verse 37, I will gather them again from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. If you get one thing here, I want you to get this. Every single one of the promises that God lays out, beginning in verse 36, has God as the active participant. Listen, God is the one who will do this. God is the hero of his story. God is the one who will come in judgment and indeed did come in judgment, but God is also the one who restores. Just look at what the beautiful promises say to us here. God is the one who will gather them and make them safe, 37, 38. God is the one who will give them one heart and one way. God will change them, 39. God will make them an everlasting covenant, 40. God will not turn away from doing good of them, 40. God will plant them in the land, 41. God will bring all the good promises to them, 42. God will restore their fortunes, 44. God is going to do it. God tells Jeremiah that punishment for sin is going to come, but punishment for sin is not the end. Forgiveness is the end. It's a gracious response. God will redeem. God will rescue. The God who justly punishes is also the God who forgives sin by taking our punishment on himself. Are you in need of rescue? Are you in need of forgiveness? Are you in need of a new start? Do you want assurance of goodness and grace and love from God? Do you want to be changed? God here says that he will do all of this for you for free. And God has indeed done that all for you for free through Jesus. See, you can envision, if you will, the Babylonian hordes overrunning the walls of Jerusalem, wiping out people, wiping out places, and the people going into exile. And then you can envision the hordes coming upon us we're afraid, we're, we're worried. We have nowhere to go and there's no escape. But instead of destroying us, one man comes and stands in between the hordes and in between us and they destroy him. And we walk away from him. And then he comes back to life and wipes out all of our enemies and rebuilds with his own hands the city that was once destroyed. Jesus is the answer to every promise God makes here. Through Jesus taking punishment for you, you experience houses being built in this land. You experience vineyards growing in this place again. experience new life forever again in his kingdom. A favorite part of this entire chapter is there in verse 41. Where God says, I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. And then he adds there, just for, just for safe measure, I will do this with all my heart and with all my soul. Now, that's almost like, a, it's almost like a marriage vow. You know, those of you who are married, get up there, the altar before the crowd and the minister is there telling you, what's going to happen and you look at your future spouse and you make promises, you make vows, you say, I will love you for better or for worse in sickness and in health until death do us part. And then you get married and you move on. And guess what? Break those promises. You might have a great, healthy marriage, but you don't keep those promises fully. When God makes promises, and then adds, I will do this with all my heart and with all my soul. You can be certain that he will, to the nth degree, keep what he promises. When, when the church, the bride of God, looks him in the eye and receives from him his vow, that is as much certainty or assurance that we could ever want to know that if God is for us, nothing can be against us with all his heart, and with all his soul, he will rescue us because nothing is too hard for him. That's the story. That's what it all points to. It's what Jeremiah needed to hear, and it's what you need to hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you tell us stories, real stories, things that really did happen, historical events that... You have preserved for us through scripture and that speak truth to our hearts because they, the stories mirror our own experiences, God. And Father, so often we feel like being a Christian is just crazy. It's not worth the cost. Taking up our cross and dying just doesn't seem to be something that we really want to do. And yet, Father, you've called us to it. And so we ask that you would help us as your people to be able to come to you in worship, in faith, and yet also bring to you our struggles and our doubts and our hardships and our anxieties, knowing that you hear us. And, Father, we pray that we would also receive from you the gracious response that you gave to Jeremiah. Help us to believe that these promises are true, that you will do it, that you will restore us, that you will bring us back, that you will make everything new again one day. And, indeed, help us to believe that you have done that in Jesus. Father, we need to hear these things, and our hearts need to be softened, to accept them as true. So will you come by the Holy Spirit and do that in our midst? And we ask these things even now in the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen.